You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. Let's begin the second class with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death, amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. In the last class, we uh, dealt with the current cultural scene uh, just in terms of setting up the contrast between that culture and the natural law, culture of life that John Paul is talking about. And uh, we talked about the Enlightenment ideas of secularism, relativism, individualism, how those lead to legal positivism, which is the idea that every enacted law is valid as long as it's enacted according to the prescribed procedures, and that there's no standard of right and wrong higher than the state by which you can judge a law to be void. Uh, we talked about the experience in Nazi Germany where the German courts after the war were able to strike down Nazi laws relating to experimentation on prisoners and other things only by recourse to the natural law. In this class, what we're going to ask is, what is the natural law? First of all, everything has a nature, including human beings. And it's, uh, let me give you an example I've used repeatedly in, in classes, uh, and it fits. Uh, if you went out of here and went in, out to the parking lot and you saw your friend Freddie standing there with the hood of his car up, and he had two cans in his hand, and one was oil and the other was molasses, and he said, hey, Freddie, what are you doing? And he said, I'm trying to make up my mind which one to put in my car. Now, if you're a real friend of Freddie's, what would you say to him? Would you say, Freddie, how do you feel about it? No. What you would say is, Freddie, you should do good by your car. And the good is that which is in accord with the nature of the thing. And oil is good for cars, molasses is not. And Freddie says, yeah, but this is a Chevy. He said, no, it doesn't make any difference. And then he says, yeah, but wait a minute, who are you to tell me what to do with my car? And so he said, well, Freddie, if you don't believe me, look in the glove compartment, look at the manufacturer's directions. That's all the natural law is. That's all the Ten Commandments are is a set of manufacturer's directions. And so Freddie looks in the glove compartment, he pulls out the manual, and on page 14 it says, in big letters, it says, use oil, never use molasses. And he says, yeah, that's what it says, but wait a minute, who are they to tell me what to do with my car? It's my car. You've heard that. It's my body. So he pours in the molasses into his crankcase, and he's liberated. He's pro-choice. And he's also a pedestrian. Because the natural law is simply the story of how things work. 
The Ten Commandments are simply a specification of the natural law. And in order to deal with this, you first have to answer the question, can you know anything? The epistemology is crucial here. Descartes, Rene Descartes, tells us that you can only know your own ideas. That the idea is that which you know. St. Thomas, on the other hand, tells us that the idea is that by which you know the essence of that wall over there. What is it that makes me know that wall? That wall makes me know that wall. And you can actually know the outside world. So what can you know? Some things are self-evident. For example, this is a marker, right? What is this thing? This is a marker. Could this also be a, a, a battleship? Could it be a marker and a battleship at the same time? Well, it can be a shovel. I can take and dig, dig a hole with it. I could put it down like this and uh, use it as a bridge so little ants could crawl over it, and it would be a bridge. But in the aspect of its marker ness, in terms of whether it is or isn't a marker, it cannot be both a marker and not a marker. This is the principle of contradiction, or non-contradiction, if you prefer. That a thing cannot be and not be at the same time under the same aspect. A thing cannot be affirmed and denied at the same time. So this is a marker. In terms of its marker-ness, this is a marker. And if you say, well, I think it can be a marker and not be a marker in terms of its marker-ness, we can't even carry on a conversation. Under another aspect, as I said, it could be a bridge, but, but this, is, this is a marker. It either is or it isn't. And it is what it is. Now you know that. That's self-evident. Now if you ask me to prove it to you, I can't prove it. It's self-evident. And if you don't buy it, if you don't buy it, we can't even carry on a conversation. We can't even talk. Why? Because this is a, a basic principle of being. And uh, somebody would say, well, wait a minute. Uh, suppose uh, there's some other world somewhere uh, where that doesn't apply. The answer is it can't be, because this is a basic principle of being. Being cannot be non-being. Let's get that straight. I mean, I, it said, why are you talking about this? I said, because there are people today that don't accept that in universities. And that's the first thing you've got to get straight. You can't know things. What else can you know? Well, you can know the essence of things outside, right? Here's the marker, right? How do I know this thing as a marker? Well, through my external and internal senses, I have external senses, I have internal senses, internal imagination, memory, common sense, instinct, and my external senses. Those external and internal senses present an image of that marker to my active intellect. They present an image of that marker to my active intellect. And the active intellect then derives the essence of that marker and presents it to my passive intellect or sometimes called the intellect proper. And the intellect proper, or the passive intellect, forms the idea marker.
And it knows the essence of what a marker is. So when I look at that door, I can form the idea door. When I can look at that marker, I form the idea marker, right? The next step is a judgment. And the judgment is by saying something is or it isn't. And I say, this is a marker. Now I can talk about truth or falsity. This is a marker. Yes. If I look at that thing and I say, this is a horse, that's false. If I say, this is a marker, that's true. Why? Now we can talk about truth, you see? And this is important. You can't even talk about the natural law unless you can, first of all, talk about whether you can know anything. And the legal positivist, the modern university relativist, will tell you nobody can know what's true. Pontius Pilate, truth. What is truth? And truth is the conformity of the judgment to reality. Lassie walks in here, and I look at Lassie and I say, that's a dog. That's true. Now, then you go to reasoning, right? The idea, then the judgment, then you reason. You have your major premise. Let's talk about Lassie. All dogs are mortal. The minor premise, Lassie is a dog. The conclusion, sorry Lassie, Lassie is mortal. Right? And it's based on the idea that you can know something. Now this is crucial. Because Hans Kelsen, I used last time, he's a very clear exponent of legal positivism, but the basic premise of the whole thing is epistemological. Where he says that you can't know what is just. Justice is irrational. Now, if we're talking about natural law, first thing you've got to be able to say is that we can know what human nature is. What can we know? How do we know things? Well, St. Thomas tells us that we know things from reason and revelation. Interesting, and St. Thomas, who is the greatest exponent of reason in the history of the church, in the very first question of the entire Summa, asked the question, he said, whether philosophy is enough? And his answer was no. He said, we need revelation. He broke down law, as I mentioned last time, as eternal law, the divine law, then the natural law, and human law. He said, you need revelation. Why? Because due to original sin, we are, and we make mistakes, and God has given us revelation so we can know with certainty what we ought to do. And you can know about the natural law. And you can know these things from reason. And it's important that we should not give this up. There are two things you've got to be careful about here. Uh, one is rationalism, which is the idea that everything is reason, that the only thing you have to operate with is reason, and the other is fideism. We've got to be careful about that. We have to reject the idea of fideism that, hey, it's all faith, and reason has nothing to do with it. No, reason and revelation, reason and faith complement each other. They go together. There's nothing inconsistent. For example, what can you know? What can you know about, about God? You can know he exists, right? The curie of ours incidentally said, hey, there's a big difference between 
believing in the existence of God and believing in him, but from reason you can know that God exists. How do you know? Well, for example, we're not, we haven't got time to get into this, but we should touch on it. Necessity. You know that there always has to have been an eternal being. How do you know? Well, there's some things that are self-evident. One thing that's self-evident is that every effect has to have a cause. If this marker drops, why did it drop? You ask me, why did it drop? Well, I say, well, it dropped because I opened my fingers. Why did I, why did I open my fingers? Because well, a message went from my brain to my fingers and so on. Now, the marker drops. Suppose you ask me, you say, well, why did that marker drop? And I say, no reason. Would you believe it? No. Everything has to have a reason. It's a principle of sufficient reason. That's self-evident. How do you know that? Now think about this. And this relates to the question of whether you know from reason that there always had to have been an eternal being. And think about this. Imagine a time when there was absolutely nothing. And think about this, that if there was ever a time when there was absolutely nothing, there could never be anything. That's how you know. There always had to be God. Or design. That's one of the proofs that God is spiritual, that he's a designer. St. Paul tells us that the Romans know God because they know him by his works. And that they reject him. Whitaker Chambers, who was a communist, he's the one who testified against Alger Hiss after the Second World War. He was involved in communist espionage in this country. Whitaker Chambers returned to God. And the thing that did it the thing that got him and began his break with communism was an interesting little development where he was feeding his infant daughter cereal. And she was smearing it all over her, her head and, and all that. And he said, I looked at her ear. And he knew the structure of the three little bones in the ear and all the rest of that. He said, I looked at her ear and a thought hit me that could not have been accidental. That had to have been designed. He said, I put it out of my mind. I tried to forget it. He said, but it kept coming back. He said, I traced my break with communism to that moment. What moment? The moment when through his reason, he knew that God exists. And we can know the attributes of God. We're not, we don't have time to get into this in detail here, but you can know there's, there's only one. There can't be more than one. You know that God is spiritual. can't be one because I mean, God is the one necessary being, the first cause. If there's, if there's more than one, you haven't reached the one necessary being. God is spiritual. How do you know? Because if he's either spiritual or he's made up of parts. If he's made up of physical parts, you have to ask yourself where the parts come from and who put the parts together. God is, is everywhere. Because if there's some place where he's fenced out, and he's not, then he's not God. You haven't found God yet. God is omnipotent. Can he do everything? Sure. Can God make a rock so heavy he can't lift it? Can he make a square circle? Those things are no thing. They are nothing. They are contradictions in terms. But God can do everything. God is omniscient. He knows everything. Does he know what you're going to do next Wednesday? Yes. Then how are you free to do it? Because while God knows what you're going to do in the foreknowledge of God, you're still free to do it. That's a great mystery.
how those two things coexist, but you know they do. Because we know we have free will. We know when we deliberate about something. I knew I thought about it before agreeing to give this course. We know when we're doing something that we've agreed to do. We've done it of our own free will, and it's our problem. I know I agreed to do this, so that's my problem. And when we do something later on, have we ever regretted anything? Regret is a testimony to free will. Oh, I wish I had said that. But so many times we go out and we say something and offend somebody else or whatever, we say, ah, why did I ever say that? As Bishop Sheen said, on the other hand, the words thank you are abundant testimony to free will. Why would you say thank you if the other person did not have a choice? And so on. We know these things. All these things you can know from reason. You can know about yourself. You can know, for example, that you are spiritual. This is very important. We're talking, we're going to be talking here, we are talking here later today and in the next class in detail about this natural law and how it works and so on. And it depends on who this person is and who this human being is. And we can know from reason that we are spiritual. How do you know? Because we can do spiritual things. Would you take that as a proposition that if you can do something that only a spiritual being can do, that a material being cannot do, that you are spiritual? The answer is yes. We can abstract. We can get abstract ideas. The capacity for abstraction shows that we're spiritual. You have a, an abstract idea, truth, justice, whatever. There's that sign over there. It's a rectangle. This paper is a rectangle. How do I know? I mean, they're both rectangles. They're different because I have the abstract idea of rectangleness or I have the abstract idea of roundness. There's a clock back on the wall there that's round. This little cap looked at from that angle is round. Now, roundness is not something that exists in the material world. But you have that abstract idea. If somebody came up to you and said, hey, you know what I've got in my car? You say, what? He says, roundness. I say, no, you don't. You may have something that's round, but roundness doesn't exist in the material world. It's an abstract idea. Tableness. This is a table. And so is this. They're both tables. Because I have the abstract idea of tableness. That's more than just registering a material sense impression. That's the process of developing the idea. Table. The abstract idea. That's how I can look at, at that marker and say, that's not a table. Because I have the abstract idea of what a table is and what a marker is. Or, I mean, the Greeks figured this out. This is not catechism. I mean, the reflection. You can reflect on yourself. And that's something that no merely material thing can do. Whether you call it examination of conscience or whatever you call it, you can think about yourself. You don't have to fall out of an airplane to do it. You can, you can think about yourself. You can think back on your whole life. You can think about your, your whole existence. And you can even think about the fact that you're thinking about yourself. And you can reflect on yourself. You know that you are spiritual, therefore. What does spiritual mean? It means that there's something about you that has no parts. A material thing has parts. We have lost sight today so much, so greatly, of the reality of the spirit. That there is a spiritual reality, and that means there's no parts. Now, if you're spiritual, it follows also that you're immortal. 
Why? Because death is just the breaking up of something into its parts. And if you're spiritual, the nature of a spiritual thing is to live forever. The death of a human being is the breaking up of the human being into its component parts, body and soul. Separation of the soul from the body. After that death occurs, and that's a scientific question, an empirical question, when has that occurred? After that occurs, then the body dies. The body decomposes. But the death of the human being is the breaking up of the body and the soul. But the soul, because it is spiritual, and how do you know it's spiritual? Because it can do spiritual things. The, the soul is immortal. The nature of the soul is to live forever. God could annihilate the soul. We have to take his word. We have his word, and we can take his word, but he will not. The nature of the soul is to live forever. You say, okay, smart guy, what about evolution? Was your ancestor swinging from trees? Were you a descendant of chimpanzees or whatever? The answer is no. Pope John Paul, in his address in October 96 to the Pontifical Academy of Sciences, reiterated the basic position of the church. He quoted Pius XII. He said, even if it were proven that the material form of the human body evolved in some way, which is something to be proven, even if that were proven, the soul, the spiritual soul, could not evolve. He didn't change any position. That's not changing the position. He said there are various hypotheses on evolution. But the one thing that's clear, is very clear, is that the spiritual soul cannot evolve because what is evolution? Evolution, if it exists, to the extent it exists, is the development of parts. But the spiritual soul has no parts. The soul, the human person, could not evolve. You didn't come out of a material element, your spiritual soul. Very important. Even if it were proven someday that the material elements had evolved in a certain way, the first human being would occur when there was the first human soul infused. So this is important. It's important for the law, and it's important for the natural law, as well as human law, because it makes a big deal. It makes a big difference whether the human law is being enacted for citizens who are going to be here today and gone tomorrow, who have no destiny beyond the grave, or whether that human law is being enacted for persons who are immortal and who have a destiny that transcends the state. That's a big deal. And it relates to the question of the natural law. What is the nature of those persons? And we'll get into that. Because we're asking ourselves, what can you know? We should divide this thing the way St. Thomas does. St. Thomas talks about reason, talks about speculative reason. It doesn't mean you have two intellects or two reasons. He just divides it this way in his analysis. The object of the speculative reason is being. And the first principle of the speculative reason is the principle of contradiction or non-contradiction. That is, that a thing cannot be and not be at the same time under the same aspect. That's self-evident, right? That's the first principle of the speculative reason, the object of which is being. And that's a principle that covers everything, whether it's morals or anything else. Yeah. 
There's also the practical reason. The object of the practical reason is the good. You say, well, what's good? Well, we'll tell you. We'll get into that. The first principle of the practical reason is that the good is that which all things seek after. It's a big deal. Boy, that's worth the money. Pay that enormous sum to find that out. The good is that which all things seek after. That's self-evident. From that follows the first principle of the natural law, which is to seek good and avoid evil. Now we're talking natural law. All right? Now we're getting into the question of what the natural law is, how it works. And we're going to provide an alternative to the prevailing culture of enlightenment philosophy and positivism. We're going to know what the natural law is, how it works. Well, how does it work? Say, okay, your basic principle, let me seek good and avoid evil. Your first question ought to be, hey, what's good? What does it mean to say that something is good? Remember we were talking about Freddie? Freddie in his car, and uh, whether he's going to put molasses or oil into the crankcase. And you said to Freddie, you said, hey, Freddie, oil is good for cars and molasses is not. That's right. And what does that mean? The good is that which is in accord with the nature of the thing. Right? And if something is not good, it's evil or wrong. Now, right at the beginning, we have to make a distinction. Very important distinction between objective wrong and subjective culpability. The Latin word culpa, C-U-L-P-A, means fault. We're going to be talking about whether some things are right or wrong. We're going to be talking about, for example, a girl going out and deciding to get an abortion. And we're going to be talking about things as being contrary to nature, contrary to the natural law, wrong. However, to be culpable for doing something wrong, you have to know it's wrong and will it. Examples. John Hinckley goes out and he shoots President Reagan and three other guys. John Hinckley was found not guilty by reason of insanity. He did something objectively wrong. He shot four guys, all of them Irish, incidentally. He shot four guys. And yet he was found not guilty by reason of insanity. He was found not culpable. Jeffrey Dahmer killed a number of people. He did something objectively wrong, and he was found culpable. So please be careful about this. When we're talking about the natural law, let's use a sensitive example. We're talking about abortion. The most we're going to say here, the most uh, we should say to that girl who's contemplating abortion is that it's wrong. I mean, if she goes ahead and does it and has the abortion, it's not our right to judge her culpability. That's up to God, confessor, etc. What we can say is that it's right or wrong. This is the important difference between a natural law approach and the prevailing enlightenment approach. Because the prevailing enlightenment approach would say to that girl contemplating abortion, well, how do you feel about it? And that makes no more sense than to say to Freddie holding the oil and the molasses, how do you feel about which one should go in your car? Because there is an objective order, there is an objective morality, an objective right or wrong. When somebody does something that is objectively wrong, whether he's culpable is going to depend on whether he knew it was wrong 
in the world to do it. And that, generally speaking, is not our job, to determine that. Now, what Thomas, St. Thomas tells us is that we know, it's self-evident, that there are certain inclinations of human nature which we know to be good. We have the inclination to seek the good, including our highest good, who is God. We know that these inclinations are good, right? What other? The second is to preserve self. It is good to preserve yourself, preserve your life. The third is to preserve the species. We know that it is good to unite sexually, to have children. Fourth, to live in community. Why is one of the most onerous penalties to inflict on somebody uh, solitary confinement? Why? Because our nature is to live in community. And fifth, to know and to choose. It is good to know and to choose. That's why it is such a, a thing contrary to nature to deprive a child of an education because it is part of human nature to know, part of human nature to be able to choose. Interesting comment by Alexander Solzhenitsyn in the Gulag Archipelago where he was talking about his uh, confinement in the Soviet Lubyanka prison in Moscow. And he was there, he was there for five years. And he was in a, by himself in a cell with a light that was always on. And he would be taken out periodically for interrogations and beatings. And uh, he could not lie down on the bed except during specified times. And he said that one of the rules that became the most onerous, one of the most onerous rules, was the rule that when he lay down on the bed, he could not put his hands under the covers. The guards wore slippers and they would peer through the peephole and if they saw a prisoner with his hands under the covers, they would go in and beat him. And why, why was that such an onerous thing? Why was it so dehumanizing? Because it deprived him of the chance, the ability to choose even that. And that's part of our nature. Now, you make deductions from these by a process of reasoning, syllogisms. You reason to conclusions from these. Uh, to preserve the species, it is good to unite sexually, to have children. Marriage is good. Marriage should be permanent. Marriage should be boy and girl. Further things, contraception, sterilization, so on. Preserve yourself. It is good to eat. It is good to get exercise. It is not good to kill yourself, and so on and so forth. Now here, when you get down to the conclusions from these basic inclinations, you're talking here about divorce, for example. You're going to find differences of opinion. Or you find in the question of preserving self, assisted suicide, or the whole business of theft. How do you know, how would you reason to the fact that theft is wrong? Well, think about it. If we're open season on cars in the parking lot, what kind of a community would it be? We know from the fact that we are made by our nature to live in community that theft is wrong. 
It's not wrong because the legislature of Indiana or New York says it's wrong. It's wrong because of nature. Because what kind of a community would you have? So how, the problem here, when you get down to conclusions from the natural law, things like abortion or divorce, you're going to have differences of opinion. You're going to have sincere differences of opinion. Every January 22nd in Washington, there are two religious ceremonies. One is held at the Shrine of the Immaculate Conception, praying for an end to abortion. The other, sponsored by the Religious Coalition for Abortion Rights or some other group like that, is held at another church thanking God for abortion. One thing is clear. Because of the first principle of the speculative reason which relates to being, all being, one thing is very clear from that principle of contradiction or non-contradiction, that they both can't be right. What is clear, as St. Thomas says, it is impossible for an act to be both right and wrong. Looked at from that same aspect, the same act, where you have the girl contemplating abortion, this girl contemplating this abortion, is either right or wrong. Now what happens here? You have differences of opinion, you have sincere people who, uh, let's say, are taking sincere positions. How do you determine what the rights and wrongs are in terms of these deductions from the natural law? This is where the question comes up, who's natural law? Who decides? That's what we've talked about the natural law as something which is a rule of reason and we've dealt with the reasoned foundations of the natural law in the sense that you can know, you can know things from your reason about God, you can know things about yourself, you can know that, that you're immortal, that you're spiritual, that you're immortal, and you can know the essence of things. I can know that that's a clock back there and it's not a, not a truck. And I can know the essence of moral actions. I can know things are right and wrong. And when we, we deal with this, we say, well, we can know these things through reason. We also have the aid of revelation, which helps us. God has given us the divine law. What are the Ten Commandments? The Ten Commandments are simply a specification of the natural law. That's all they are. As St. Thomas said, mere philosophy, philosophy by itself is not enough. You need revelation. Not because you can't reason to things, you can. You can reason to the essence of things. You can know the essence of things and you can reason to the rightness or wrongness of things. And it's impossible where the question is an abortion or a divorce or whatever, it's impossible for it to be both right and wrong. And so we say, well, how do we approach this natural law thing? How do we reason to all this stuff? And how do we handle the problems where there are differences of opinion? Well, we go back to basics. The first principle of the natural law is to seek good and avoid evil. That's the first thing. And what is the good? The good is that which is in accord with the nature of the thing. Remember Freddie and his oil and molasses. The good is that which is in accord with the nature of the car. It is good for cars to feed them oil, not to feed them molasses. And even if Freddie is sincere about it, it is good for human beings to preserve the species. 
to preserve self. It is good to unite sexually to have children. It is good to do that in marriage and only in marriage. You can reason to all these things. It is good for marriage to be permanent. And it is good for sex to be reserved for marriage and so on. Right? Now all these things are open to reason and we have to make sure that we keep in our mind the important distinction between the objective wrong and the subject of culpability. Please don't misunderstand this. We're going to be talking about the natural law for the next four hours. And we are not saying that the abortion that that girl gets over here in South Bend, uh, that the abortion is objectively wrong. We are not saying that that girl is going to hell. We don't know. That's up to God to decide. But what we can say is this contrary to nature and contrary to reason. Now, let's get into the very big question that always comes up. Whose natural law and who decides? Let me give you one of the toughest questions I can, I can think of, right? Let's play with this and we're going to get into it next time. Here you have these basic inclinations of human nature, which we know to be good. We know that it's good to seek the good, it's good to preserve self, it's good to preserve the species, it's good to live in community, and it's good to know and to choose. And we make deductions from those inclinations, right? And the question of divorce comes up. Is it right or is it wrong when you're married to divorce and remarry somebody else? All right, let me give you a case. A is married to B. B stands for bum. Right? And he really is. He's a bum. He beats her up, drinks up all the money, bad to the kids, and so on. Along comes C, Mr. Wonderful, who wants to marry A. Let's get one thing straight. The marriage between A and B is a valid marriage. It is a marriage. This is, we're not talking about an annulment here, whether civil or religious. We're talking here about a valid marriage which was entered into, and so on. And the question is not whether A can get a civil divorce from B. That's not the question. Because a civil divorce is not intrinsically wrong. The question is whether A, if she gets a civil divorce from B, and is validly, in moral terms, married to B, whether she can marry C. Now, if you took a poll on that, C is Mr. Wonderful, he's gonna take her and the kids to Bimini, it's gonna be life of happiness ever after. How do you think that poll would turn out? But the question is, is it right or wrong? One thing you know, before you try to answer it, is that it can't be both right and wrong. It's one or the other. Same thing with the kid who is contemplating the abortion. She's torn. She's really trying to decide whether to have an abortion. The one thing you can be sure of is that it can't be both right and wrong. So the question then is, what good is natural law if there are differences of opinion? And let's grant sincerity here, all right? Let's say the people who differ on assisted suicide are sincere. What good is natural law if nobody can really know what the answer is. And that's what we're going to take up next time. But for this time, what we've done is talked about some of the 
reasoned foundations of the natural law. So the natural law is not an exercise in fideism. It's not some kind of blind faith, leap of faith, or whatever. We're talking about things that you can know from reason. You can know from reason. God. You can know from reason the spiritual nature of the human person. You can know from reason that you're immortal. And you can know from reason right from wrong. And you can draw conclusions from these basic inclinations of human nature which you know to be good. And you can draw conclusions as to whether they're right and wrong. And those conclusions can't be both right and wrong. So that's what we'll pick up next time. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.